happy Sabbath. We're so happy that we are here together on this Sabbath day. How many of you attended the all-night prayer meeting last night? Wasn't that such a blessing? Amen. It is always such a blessing to pray together um, like our early pioneers did and pray and study the Bible. We just welcome you to Sabbath school. I, I know that you will not ever forget this Sabbath school. It's going to be so exciting. You're going to love it. But before we begin, would you just please bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for another Sabbath day. We thank you for bringing all of us here and the things that we have learned and the experiences that we have had thus far. Lord, we know that you are still going to continue to bless us and the blessings are coming. So we just praise your name for all that you've done and what you will continue to do. Be with us now during this Sabbath school time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm a fourth-generation Adventist. I'm happy that my mom is here in the audience this morning. I was uh, raised in an Adventist home. I went um, from first grade all the way through our schools. And you know what? I still didn't know or understand completely our message or how to defend it from the Bible. And um, one Wednesday evening... We, our family went to prayer meeting, and we decided, my husband decided that we were going to be reading from last day events, and so he was leading out, and that night, the chapter was on the devotional life of the remnant. How many of you have ever read that chapter before? It's a very powerful chapter. But in that chapter, it talks about what it's going to be like for God's people at the end of time when we don't have our Bibles right in front of us. She actually says that God will bring back to our remembrance those things that we have studied so that we can defend ourselves in trial. Because you know, some of us will be called in front of judges and have to defend our faith. Can we do that without a Bible? After that prayer meeting, I said, Ivor, that just really hit me. I, I don't think I can do that without my Bible or at least without him being by my side. You know what it's like being married to, to Pastor Myers? You become very lazy sometimes because I could just ask him the question. I don't have to search deep for myself. I had become very lazy in that way. And so God convicted me that I needed to study even more for myself and not depend upon him or anyone else. And then as we're driving home, we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful when we're at Army? Because before, what we used to do is for Sabbath school time, you would have the speakers lined up like they just did. And then somebody would come up and ask them these deep Bible questions, and they would show off what they know. But that doesn't really, I mean, that helps us a little bit, but that's not everything that we need. And so we decided, you know what's even better? We need to show the people that they do have some knowledge, they may need some more, but we need to ask them the questions. And so in your program, you see this is called a mock trial. So the gentlemen that you just um, have seen come on stage, they are not who you think they are. They are prosecutors, and they're not Seventh-day Adventists either. And you are all Seventh-day Adventists, and you believe in what 
you've been taught. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see if you can defend what you believe from the Bible. So this is actually no longer a church or a sanctuary. You are in a courtroom, and it is the end of time, and you have to defend your faith. What we're going to do is the prosecutors are going to ask a question, a, a, a doctrinal question, and you, if you think you have the answer from the Bible and the Bible only, then you raise your hand and we'll call upon you and you will come up here to, to defend your faith. Now, in a courtroom, you, also, you have to have a judge. So at this time, we want to um, call the Honorable Dave Stewart... Oh, that's right. The bailiff does that. That's right. Okay, at this time, I'm just going to sit down, and Bailiff Taylor is going to take over. All rise. The Superior Court of the State of California, County of Napa, is now in session. The Honorable David Stewart, Judge presides. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, Deputy Fau. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. This courtroom's a little small, but I think it will do. Um, we're gathered here today. I understand, Deputy Fau, on the docket this morning, we have uh, a group of Christians on trial who claim to uh, believe what the Bible teaches. The Bible will be our legal authority today, and only the Bible. We have an esteemed group of intimidating <laughs> prosecutors who are just itching to ask some questions to see if you really can defend your faith. So I'd like to call our first prosecutor up, uh, Ivor Myers. Are you ready to uh, question the audience? So the way this works is he'll ask a question, and if you think you can answer it, then we'd like to have you quickly, but not, there's no running in this courtroom. We'd like to have you come forward quickly to the witness stand. And uh, we have very limited time and lots of prosecutors, lots of questions. So we need to keep this moving. If I find that you're not really answering the question, I'm going to have to cut you off. So get to the point very quickly. And so um, for each question, uh, we'll have up to two witnesses that can answer it. And then if it's not answered to the satisfaction of the prosecutor, they can give what they think would be a more full and rich answer. Are you ready to ask the first question? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, as an expert in uh, religions, I have uh, studied uh, Adventism quite a bit, and I have to share with you that uh, the attitude of Seventh-day Adventist is uh, very exclusive. Um, don't like it at all. You guys teach that uh, Adventists are the only ones that are going to be saved. And um, I don't find that in the Word of God. In fact, I find that attitude very uh, offensive. Uh, there are many Christians of other denominations and, uh, who love the Lord, and I don't know where you get this uh, attitude from. So I'd like for you, if you could, to answer that question concerning the attitude of Adventists. And if you have any scripture to back that up, that Adventists are the only ones that will be saved, I would like for you to share that. All right, I need you to raise your hand if you want to answer. Yes, yes, ma'am. Come forward, please, quickly. We have very limited time. Please state your name for the court. 
credit card number? Good morning, Ms. Hill. Do you understand the question? I do understand the question. All right. Please talk up so the audience can hear. Okay. Um, the prosecutor there said he was very familiar with the Adventist Church, so he knows we are Bible-based, and we take our beliefs from the Word of God. And I have here something that we actually do teach in John 10, 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. We are not exclusive. I, I knew that. <laughs> and was just trying to make sure that. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you very much. That's a good sign when the prosecutor immediately sits down. All right, next prosecutor, Mr. Pocklip. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. These people here at the Seventh-day Adventist Church have a pillar doctrine about what happens when a person dies. And their understanding is that when a person dies, their death, probation closes at death, and there's no consciousness in death. And that those who die, they have no hope of a second chance. But the Bible teaches something very different. And the devil is using these people to rob others of the hope of a second chance after death. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. It tells us clearly that Christ died, but there was consciousness in death. And that he went to preach to other spirits that were also conscious. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. For Christ also has suffered, has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So my understanding of this passage is that Jesus died in the flesh, but was quickened by the Spirit. In other words, his flesh died, but his spirit did not die. He lived on in consciousness, and after he died, he went to preach to the spirits that were in prison, during the, those who lived during the time of Noah. And the question is, why would he preach to the spirits in prison in the time of Noah if their probation had already closed when they died? It's obvious that there is consciousness in death and that when a person dies, they still have a hope of another opportunity. Is there someone who'd like to answer this question? Please come to the microphone. Kevin Carpenter, and I didn't bring your credit card, sorry. Right, sir, do you have a criminal record? Uh, moving violations only, Your Honor. Okay, thank and you. Most of them right here in Angwin. And I'm reading from Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. True, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. There are no more rewards for them. They are utterly forgotten. For them, love, hate, ambition 
All are now over. Never again will they have any part in what is done here under the sun. And Solomon concludes in this book of Ecclesiastes with, This is the end of the matter. You have heard it all. Fear God and obey His commands. There is no more to man than this. For God brings everything we do to judgment and every secret, whether good or bad. Do you have any follow-up questions, Mr. Pocklip? That's your verse, but this verse seems to be clear, that Christ died in the flesh, quickened by the Spirit, and it says He went to preach to the spirits in prison those who lived during the time of Noah. I would want to ask somebody who's well-versed in Greek and Hebrew to interpret for us what is meant by spirits. So if there's somebody in the audience that would do that, right. I'd be glad to share the podium with them. All right. Thank you, sir. Is there someone who, else who would like to answer the question about this specific passage that uh, Mr. Pocklip has raised? Yes, sir. My name is Vince Onkoba, and I would like to answer the question that has been posed. Throughout Scripture, we understand it, Isaiah 28, verses 9 and 10, that the method, the biblical method of studying is here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. So we take the weight of evidence and understand Scripture by the weight of evidence. We don't take one verse and build a doctrine off of it. Isaiah 38. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to, I understand that method, and we could probably spend all day with other texts answering the question, but can you talk, address it specifically with this passage and how it should be interpreted? Specifically how this passage should be interpreted, I would be giving a different, I suppose, answer, not so much specifically how to interpret the scripture, but I was giving two scriptures concerning the state of the dead. All right, and thank you, sir. That the dead cannot praise Lord. Uh, thank you. That's okay. Thank you very much. I think he really wants someone to grapple with this passage. So what, what answer were you looking for? Yes. If, we, if you have your Bibles there, you'll notice that the subject of this passage, when it talks about verses 19 and 20, about he went in, uh, by which he went and preached unto spirits in prison, the last part of verse 18 makes it clear that Christ so, uh, died in the flesh but was quickened by the Spirit. So the subject is not so much the death of Christ, the subject or what happened at the death of Christ, but rather the Spirit by which. In other words, the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave is the same Spirit that went and preached unto the other spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. And here's the question. When was it that, the, that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, preached to the people or the, the, the individuals that lived during the time of Noah? The answer is right there in the verse. While the ark was a preparing. So while Noah was building the ark, the Bible says in Genesis 6-3 that the Spirit of God was striving with the hearts of individuals. And so the verse is not saying that when Jesus died, he went to preach. It says the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus is the same Spirit that preached through, the, through, through Noah to the individuals while he was preparing the ark, inviting them to come out of the prison house of sin and into the salvation house of, of the ark. And, you know, sometimes that word spirit in the Bible can trip us up. You know, we understand that spirit represents breath or the life-giving force or energy of God, but spirit can also mean a person's understanding, a person's feelings and thoughts. 
And so when it talks about spirits in prison, it's talking about the Spirit of God reasoning with the minds and understanding of people when they were in the prison house of sin. And so in the, in the verse itself, we find the answer. The key is, while the ark was a preparing, that the Spirit of God was speaking to individuals. So in no way does this verse teach that there is consciousness in death. And the verse I think Vince was about to share that really nails it is Isaiah 38 and verse 18. The Bible says the, uh, that the dead don't praise the Lord and they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. And so probation closes at death. What we, what we do, we need to do it now while we still have life. Thank you very much. All right, Mr. Bradshaw. Thank you, Your Honor. And I must say, when I saw you come out dressed that way, I was hopeful you were going to be baptized today, but evidently you're no, that, that happened prosecuting well. the judge there, so pardon me for the confusion. I would, uh, I would very much like to take the uh, opportunity to address a passage of Scripture that Seventh-day Adventists hold dear, but which may contain a rather dramatic contradiction in terms of their faith. I am told that Seventh-day Adventists hold precious a passage that they refer to as the three angels' messages. Found in my Bible in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. Begins in verse 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. You ought to be familiar with the passage. Now, Seventh-day Adventists teach in contradistinction to virtually the entire body of Christian thought that the lost in hell burn and turn to ashes. Yet, in their very own three angels' message, in their very own third angels' message, it says, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, and so on. Now, I'll confess that I am only expert in one language, and that is the English language. I thought you spoke New Zealand. Well, that's the English language. Oh, okay. I am less expert, but still conversant in American, and uh, to a degree in Canadian, and to a lesser extent in Australian. But New Zealand English is the language I speak. And this language seems to say plainly and simply that the wicked burn forever and ever. I wonder if it's even possible that a Seventh-day Adventist could unravel for me this obvious contradiction in their faith. All right, do we have a volunteer? I see a hand. Please make your way quickly. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> My name is Joshua. <clears throat> First of all, I would just like to mention, I don't have a Bible scripture to back this up. But the smoke, the smoke that you say, rises forever and ever. Uh, I took this from Doug Batchelor, a match. Okay, okay, keep you... in mind the authority in this courtroom is not a man, it's, it's, it's the Bible. Absolutely, the Bible, the Bible. You're making me a little nervous when you start off saying, I don't have a scripture. Well, go ahead, we'll give, you, we'll give okay. you a chance. When you light a match, 
What happens to it? It burns. But yet, do you extinguish it? Well, if the match just burns all the way, the smoke from that match can arise forever and ever and ever. But what is it ever, did you ever extinguish it? Yet there's just nothing left to burn. The smoke can rise forever and ever, but does that mean that people are burning forever and ever if it's never extinguished? Any follow-up questions? Typical Adventist. <laughs> Didn't have a Bible verse to address the question. All right. Another opportunity. One more person would like to chance. Oh, well, sorry, I picked on him first. Pleasing logic. Go ahead. Pleasing logic. Please state your name for the court. Good morning. My name is Timothy Taylor. Happy Sabbath. It might not be the right one, but I do have a Bible verse. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Oh. Okay. Any follow-up questions? Because he specifically was referring to Revelation 14. Right, he want, and you wanted a Bible verse that's, that said I think that they he don't wanted burn you to, forever and ever, and it says they burn up. No, he wanted you to... Okay, uh, I get the wrong one. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Thank you. <laughs> what answer were you looking for? Well, the problem isn't with Malachi chapter 4, nor is the problem with the nature of smoke. The problem we have is with the phrase in the three angels' messages, which says forever and ever. One thing we cannot afford to do as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, or <clears throat> one thing you all as Seventh-day Adventist Christians cannot afford to do, <clears throat> I heard Sister Myers say something earlier that made me very nervous, these men are not Seventh-day Adventists. Well, all right. Um, one thing we want to do is, is, not, is not, uh, uh, not be afraid of what the Bible says and, and then not flee to another verse to take cover behind another verse. We can afford to front up to the verse and what the verse says. The verse says forever and ever. Now we need to understand something and that forever and ever was an idiom of the language of the day. It didn't have to literally mean forever and ever like, like, like we understand. What you want to do when you come to the Bible is not, is not tell the world what you think the Bible says, but explain to the world what the Bible writer's point was when he wrote what he wrote. Now, what you can do to address forever and ever is head back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and you get down to verse 22, Hannah, this godly woman who was desperate for a child, did not go up to the temple for she said to her husband, 1 Samuel 1, 22, I will not go up until the child be weaned and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide how long forever but we notice in verse 28 therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he liveth he shall be lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there so forever means clearly for as long as he lives or as long as the time or the event lasts over in the book of Jonah and for time's sake I'm not going to turn to the verses because I have another question I really want to ask and, and it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish. He says that the earth with her mountains and her bars was about me forever. But in the same book, we read that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. If you're in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, it probably felt like forever. 
Forever in the word of God, multitudinous times is used in conjunction or to explain, in conjunction with or to explain an event that has happened and has been and gone. I once made a mistake. I wrote an article and I said in the article about 56 times the Bible uses the term forever to mean something that done happened already. And someone wrote to me and said, can you, can you furnish me with that list of 56 verses? I was silly enough to say yes, but then that's when I discovered my mistake. I got to about 83 or 85 listed these verses. And I concluded by saying there are more, you find them. So you will discover in the word of God that many, many times forever is used plainly and simply, but it doesn't use mean forever in the way we talk about forever as being time without end. It means as long as an event shall last. And when you explain like that, you are using the Bible verse, the Bible passage, the very same Bible words to explain biblically the truth, the glorious truth that sinners do not burn in hell forever, but indeed they are reduced to ashes. And All right, preacher, say, I think, preacher, I don't want to accuse you of taking forever, but <laughs> we have a very important speaker at 11 o'clock. We don't want to take away from his time, so I, we need to move on to the next speaker. And by the way, as the next speaker comes up, I apologize for the acoustics in this courtroom. It was probably built by the lowest bidder. All right, Mr. Cramp, do you have a question? Yeah, my honor. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church holds a lot of strange doctrines, um, but for many doctrines, you will find other Christians who will support these doctrines, like the Sabbath or the state of the dead. But there's one particular doctrine which is so strange and unbiblical, as I believe, that no other Christian outside the Adventist church ever accepted it. It's called the investigative judgment. I wonder, is anyone here who believes in an investigative judgment in 1844? Okay. In researching the literature of this denomination, I found out that this denomination believed that Daniel 8 verse 14 is a cornerstone of their theology. In other words, if we can show the fallacy of their investigative judgment in Daniel 8 14, the complete theology of the Seventh-day Adventist Church will crush. Now we have to understand that this doctrine was built by certain men like William Miller and Crosby. What's your question, Mr. Cramp? What's your question? Here's my question. You have to understand that when William Miller looked at this verse, he found the English word cleanse. The sanctuary shall be cleansed. And having not been trained in Hebrew and having not an exhaustive concordance, he found another text in Leviticus 16 where the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So he concluded Leviticus 16 is a parallel to Daniel 8.14. And basically most of our, the evangelists in the Adventist church will take this as a proof. But unfortunately, all scholars in all denominations, including the Seventh-day Adventist church, have found that the Hebrew word for cleansing here and the Hebrew word for cleansing in Leviticus 16 are completely different words, not having anything in common. So I wonder, is someone here who can still prove to me that this verse speaks about the investigative judgment, seeing that there's no linguistic parallel between Leviticus 16 and Daniel 8 verse 14? Which verse in Le uh, uh, Leviticus 16 are you referring Oh, there are several to? verses. It's all about uh, the cleansing of the sanctuary. But it right. seems to be to all other Christians that another meaning is employed, and this, this verse here should not be rendered cleansing, but more justifying midright 
All right. Is there someone who'd like to take a shot at this question? Understand that this is a core point of the theology of Adventists. I have. By the way, are you an attorney or a lawyer? Because those are two different words. Anyway, do we have someone that could come answer this question? Do we have what brave soul? Normally, we have too many volunteers. Why is it when we have a bigger courtroom, we have less people interested in coming to answer? Is there anyone? It's a question okay. again. I want you to. Can you? In yeah. 30, 30 words or less, phrase just the question, not the speech. Why is Daniel 8.14 speaking of the investigative judgment, seeing there's no linguistic connection to Leviticus 16? Why do we say that this is speaking of the investigative judgment? Can you just, what, what are the different words used in Leviticus 16 versus Daniel 8.14? I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm just an attorney. I was reading Hebrew scholars, and, and this is, this is uh, accepted even by every either liberal or, uh, or conservative Adventist scholar, so there's no doubt about it. But what Hebrew or what English word are you focusing in on? Are you cleansing, focusing cleansing, on? Cleansing. Cleansing, okay. Cleansing, yeah. So you're saying that the Hebrew word for cleansing in Daniel 8, 14 Absolutely. is not found in Leviticus 16. Absolutely. So you're questioning whether there's a cleansing. Uh, state your name for the court, please. This is a former prosecutor. I don't know if he got disbarred, but now he's, he's back in court. Go ahead. State your name. Hi, uh, Don McIntosh. Do you have a criminal record? I'm about to. <clears throat> uh, that's an excellent point, uh, Chris. And you brought that up, actually, the last time we talked in England. It seems like you're trying to raise trouble around the world. The, uh, the word, the Hebrew word in Daniel 8.14 is nizdak. Nizdak is, can be translated different ways. In the uh, RSV, it's translated made right or restored to its rightful place. And that is actually the intent of Leviticus chapter 16. And also the intent in Leviticus chapter 23. Throughout the Bible and throughout um, you know, Hebrew culture, each year, everything was made right and restored for its rightful order on the Day of Atonement, which um, is what it's referring to. And so, in Daniel 8, 14, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed or made right, fits perfectly with that in intent. Um, it not only was a picture of the Hebrew yearly cycle, but it was also a picture of the entire plan of salvation. And this is why in the New Testament multiple times, but especially in the book of Hebrews, it, re it, it refers back to this time of cleansing and links it in Hebrews chapter 9, for instance, with the Day of Atonement in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Also in Acts chapter 17, it talks about a day when the, the Lord will judge the world in righteousness by the man which he ordained. And that day of judgment was seen as future. Um, and the only way you can look at that day of judgment is to search back in the Old Testament and guess what you come back to? Both the day of judgment in Leviticus 16 and that what is, which is alluded to in Daniel 8 and verse 14. So 
that's my answer, and I could go on. Uh, does that answer your question? I'm not really satisfied, honestly. Since right. I, know, I know that the New Testament speaks about the judgment, but I could not see how the New Testament is really related here to this verse in Daniel 8.40. Because it says only for 2,300 years, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay, 2,300 uh, evenings and mornings. That's really literally in the translation, which I'm sure you're aware, although you don't know Hebrew. So, <clears throat> when it says under 2,300 days... Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. There was only one day a year that the sanctuary was cleansed. So 2,300 would refer to 2,300 days yeah, of cleansing, yeah. which means that would be once a year, which would be 23 centuries. That was written in the 5th century before Christ. Take five away from 23, it brings you down to the 1800s. Sometime in the 1800s then, the sanctuary was going to be cleansed. And that's the only way we can understand that text. That's the only way Daniel could have understood the text. Was there a sanctuary to cleanse in Daniel's day? No, it had been cast down. So we were looking forward. He was looking forward to when that sanctuary would be re restored. And God had said after 70 years they would go back, but still it wasn't restored. And so you have to follow out all the way through Scripture and uh, the link to me to the New Testament is Daniel chapter 12, which links with Revelation chapter 10. I can go on. Thank you. That's okay. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, sir. You Let may me step just, down. Did you have a closing thought? Yeah. Quickly, uh, quickly, very quickly. Very quickly. First of all, uh, having. First, no, first and seconds and third. Oh, oh, Real two, quick. Very quick. Very, very quick. Two different words can be used for one concept. So, since the Bible has not been dictated by God, and every writer uses his own words, it's very common that one word can have different concepts and one concept can have different words. This is what you are referring to, attorney and lawyer. So being an attorney and being a lawyer can be the same thing, although these words are not interrelated linguistically. Whenever someone asks you this question, ask him whether he believes that the Bible is verbal inspired, and he will deny it, and then you have won the argument. But here's the point. Daniel, 10, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8 refer to the same events. Daniel 2 has Babylon, Medipatria, Greece, Rome, and then um, the papal church, and then something happening in heaven. In Daniel 7, you have um, Babylon, Medipatria, Greece, Rome, the papal church, and a judgment. And then this, uh, this, um, 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 this um, pattern is repeated in Daniel 7 twice, with the fourth beast, the papal church, and the judgment. Papal church, judgment. Papal church, judgment. And then we come to Daniel 8, where we have Medopatria, Greece, Rome in its uh, empire, Rome as a papal church, and then we come to Daniel 8.14. So by the law of parallelism, it is clear that Daniel 8.14 must be the investigative judgment spoken of in Daniel 7. Okay. So you're saying that in the sequence of these the sequence of events, kingdoms, after the papal power, yeah. always uh, in one it's the, Absolutely. It's the judgment, and one is the... Yeah. Uh, cleansing. Yeah, and, and we can go on in Daniel 11, you find the All same right. sequence and so on. Thank you very and much, in the Revelation. Mr. Graham. Thank you very much. Mr. Beck, are you ready to answer a question, or ask a question? So my question this morning is, is there any evidence that Daniel 9 is the key starting point for the prophecy found in Daniel 8? In other words, what evidence is there, if any, that Daniel 9 should be connected to Daniel chapter 8? So what you're saying is, how do Seventh-day Adventists 
use 457 BC right. as the starting correct. date yeah, that's right. to get us to 1840, yes, to get them to the starting point of the 2300 days. To get right. them to the ending point of the 2300 days. Start. No, starting. Give them the dates. What are you referring to? No, okay, so the question is, when, we, when, we, when Seventh-day Adventists talk about the 2300 days, they always use Daniel 9 as the explanation prophecy for the starting point. But what evidence is there that Daniel 9 is connected to Daniel 8, which is the chapter in which the prophecy of the 2300 days is found? Does, does that make sense? Yeah, so in other words, how do you use Daniel 9 as a starting point for the Daniel 8.14? What evidence is there that Daniel 9 should be connected to Daniel 8 and used in reference to the prophecy of the 2300 Anybody days? Anybody want to take it? We have a Mr. Beal. Please state your name for the court. David Beal. Go ahead. So there are three elements that I think are important to consider in this. Your, ask, your question was, how do we know that there's any link between the vision in Daniel 9 yes. and Daniel 8? Yes. And so there, there are three things I would like to point out. One is when the angel comes, he says, Daniel's been praying and asking for God's mercy on his people. The angel says, Daniel, we like you, and I've come to give you wisdom and all this. And he says, consider the vision. So he's pointing, he says, consider the vision. So he's saying, what vision? Well, he hadn't had a vision except the one that was before that he was confused about. The end of Daniel 8 says he was confused. He didn't know what was going, going on. That's number one. Immediately after, it says 70 weeks are cut off. And the best, the best we can pick out of that word, that's a unique word in, in the Bible, but the best we can tell is it means cut off. And so it's say cut off from what? Well, that would be from the 2300 that were before. Okay. Number three is if you look at the structure of every prophecy in the book of Daniel, there are, there's a similar structure. In Daniel 2, you have four kingdoms, and then the stone comes and you have judgment. Daniel 7, it's a little broader. You have um, the, the four beasts, and the judgment happens on them. And Daniel says, hey, I don't get it. The angel says, okay, here's a tip. The, Daniel says, I still don't get it, and then the angel tells him more, right? So then you see the same thing happens when you put Daniel 8 and 9 together, that Daniel has a vision, he sees four segments, he doesn't get it, that's the end of Daniel 8, that he comes and he asks for help, Daniel 9, he gets the help, and then you see that there's a similar structure like that in Daniel 10 through 12, actually, too. Yeah, so three points. Okay. Is that sufficient? I, I want to, can I just add one thing sure. to close? Um, if you. you'd open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, there is some linguistic evidence here found in the original Hebrew that I believe really cements this. Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the Bible uses the word vision there. And if you look carefully uh, in the Hebrew dictionary, the word vision here is the Hebrew word hazon. So just keep that in mind because when it's using this word vision, it's really encompassing the entire vision that's found in Daniel chapter 8, which has elements of the ram and the goat and the little horn, and then of course this 2300 days. But when we come down to Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, the Bible says, and the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true. Now what's interesting is that we understand that the word days in the Bible can also be rendered evenings and mornings. At creation, the first day was called the first evening and the morning, right? So when it says in verse 26, the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true, this is actually a reference to the 
verse 14, which if you have a Bible with a marginal reading, it will say the, the 2300 evenings and mornings. But the word used for vision in verse 26 is a different Hebrew word. It's actually not the word hazon, it's the Hebrew word mare. So it's different. In other words, the word mare is used specifically in reference to the vision of the 2300 days. And then when you come to Daniel 9, verse 21, the Bible says, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, the Hebrew word here for vision is the Hebrew word hazon, meaning Daniel is saying, this is the angel that I had seen from the vision of Daniel chapter 8. But if you come down to verse 23, now it differ, it's different. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come forth to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the what? Vision. The vision, the word here is not hazon, it's now mare, which is only used in connection with the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which makes reference to the 2300 days. So that's just All kind right. of, in a nutshell, some concrete evidence that these two things are connected. Thank you so much. My bailiff had an announcement. Please wait to be called upon. Don't just walk up. Natural reaction to that. All right. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Myers, do you have another question? You know, something strange is happening to me as I sit and listen to you, Adventists. Okay, please don't. Remember, you're just asking a question, no arguments. <laughs> Mr. McIntosh, um, if I might just have a few questions for you afterward, maybe we can talk. But uh, back to my prosecution duties. Um, Um, well, I've been told that you Adventists believe that when you die, you, uh, you sleep. You don't go uh, straight to uh, heaven like the rest of the Christian world does. And uh, in, in the book 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, The Bible, uh, at least what I think clearly says, is therefore we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, verse 7, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so... It, it seems to me, as an expert, that the Bible is here saying that when you die, you are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Uh, how do you Adventists explain this? And if you explain this, I'll become a Seventh-day Adventist. Just raise your hand if you'd like to answer it. We have a hand back here. My name is Gary Whitney. Your Honor, I'd like to uh, enter, for the record, Exhibit A, which is a King James Version Bible. 
probably the same one the uh, prosecuting not, attorney we need, has. We don't need that as an exhibit. It's the rule book here. <laughs> Very big difference between exhibits and the legal authority, but go ahead. Amen. Uh, the prosecuting attorney has brought forth a, a great point, and, uh, but I believe that his argument is flawed at his very foundation because he says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord means that when we die, we go to heaven. But if you look at 1 Corinthians, also written by Paul, in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not and is so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that have done rather, uh, this deed might be taken away from among you. And in verse three, your honor, for I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. Need I say any more? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> your argument, uh, Your Honor, his argument is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But here Paul is saying that he is absent in body but present in spirit and he was alive at this time. Any follow-up questions? Well, uh, yeah, I have a follow-up question. Um, <laughs> I've never seen Ivor Myers uh, speechless before. B but remember, I'm not Ivor Myers. <laughs> no prosecutor. Very, very striking uh, resemblance, but go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, um, you, you guys are wrong because most people that I talked to uh, told me that when you die, you go to heaven. <laughs> okay, I have no more questions, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, next question, Mr. Pockloop. We uh, have 10 minutes left, so let's make good use of the time. Please, please raise your hands up high so that the can I Can the I just do this real quickly? See. I'm sorry. If you look at the context of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll do this very quickly. Um, uh, Paul is here speaking about he's longing to be for this tabernacle, the old tabernacle, to be clothed uh, with immortality is what, he's, is what he's saying. And so when he says... Uh, when he talks about the time that he will be absent from the body and present with the Lord, he is talking about a transition from this earth to heaven, but he's not giving the timing. He simply says, I can't wait to be out of this body and to be present with the Lord. But when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, the same author now gives you the timing that it is at the last trump, when that trump blows, that this mortal shall put on immortality and this corruption shall become incorruptible. So the same author actually explains this is what he, this is what he means. It is at the second coming of Christ that we become absent from this old body 
and present with the Lord in a new and incorruptible body. All right, thank you. Your Honor, we're living in a very crisis hour at this moment in time. Economic instability, moral corruption, terrorism, wars, and rumors of wars. And we as a country need to get back to God and unite on points in common. And we have been pushing for a national Sunday law. But this Seventh-day Adventist people have been a thorn in the flesh of the Christian world. They have not gone along with the majority. They are insisted in keeping the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, the seventh day of the week, even though the Bible clearly teaches that Sunday is the Lord's day. And furthermore, in Acts chapter 20, we find even after the resurrection, we find a biblical example of God's people, the disciples, worshiping on the first day of the week. These are troublers of the people. These are the reason why there's so much chaos. And I, I want to plead with these to join with the majority in bringing this country back to God. Do you have a question? Why is it that you keep the Jewish Sabbath and have not gone along with the majority of God's people in, in seeking for the true unity of the Spirit in these last days? And how do you explain Acts chapter 20 when the disciples kept the first day of the week? I need a hand and I need a mouth. Please raise them high. I have a hand over here. Please hurry, sir. Sir, where's your tie? Where's your Sabbath tie? I left uh, Tacoma, Washington without my Sabbath tie. My name is uh, Huang, uh, Huang Chan Sun. And uh, people call me Chan. But, uh, you know, it says in Christ's words in the Gospels that the Sabbath was made for man. And man is a really funny way to spell Jew. Um, God commanded before ever there was a Jew born. Um, God's the first one who kept the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, because that in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. So we see God resting. And after he rested, he blessed the day. And he sanctified. And David says, what you have sanctified, Lord, is blessed forever. And so we actually, in the book of Acts, we see G, uh, we see Paul following the example of Jesus, whose custom it was to synagogue, go to um, worship at the temple every Sabbath day. We see over um, 76 Sabbaths that Paul kept. Uh, and in Acts 20, 
to address your question, there's a meeting that happened just as Paul was about to set sail. And there was not very much time. And so they actually met on the Jewish first day, which was Saturday night. Okay, and that meeting, in other words, they had meetings all day, but because Paul was leaving, they wanted to have more time with him, to hear more precious gems. And the we, worship service went from excuse me for then interrupting. to Saturday night through Excuse me for early. interrupting. When the judge speaks, no one else speaks. I'm so sorry. Okay? Just a good rule to remember if you're ever in court. Now listen, how do we know it's a Saturday night when the text says the first day of the week? Isn't that Sunday? Yes. The first so how day do you of get Saturday week. night out of the first day of the week? Excellent question, Your Honor. I thought so myself. Thank you. <laughs> I agree. In the creation, um, we see that the, the Jewish people reckoned a day as evening and morning. And that's why Moses wrote the evening and the morning were, uh, was the first day, was the second day, uh, at, and so on and so forth. And also, um, we know that the first day was accounted from the evening of the seventh day to the evening of the first day. And we can but, see... But there's nothing in there that talks about an evening, is there? Um, in the text? It says just the first day of the week. Well, being, being Jewish, Paul used um, the first day as, you know, in Jewish reckoning, evening of the uh, seventh day to the evening. And evening means sunset. So from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday is the Sabbath. And that is, those are the hours that God rested. And he invites us to rest on the same day as a memorial of his creation. And in, in fact, Jesus, even in his death, he rested on the seventh day. All right, thank you. We're trying to fit in one more question. Thank you very much. Did you have anything to add just very quickly? Yes, uh, you got verses to back all that up? Yes. Amen, okay. Uh, one thing just right there in the verse, it says there are many lights in the upper chamber. So just like there are now, they're blinding me. <laughs> and it says he preached until midnight, not midday, but midnight in verse 7. So it's the dark part of the first day of the week. We would call that Saturday night, as he, as he mentioned. Leviticus 23, 32 says, from even to even shall you celebrate your Sabbaths. And then Mark chapter 1, verse 32, it says, even when the sun did set. So we know that even, is that from sunset to sunset? So they had worship all Sabbath long. Saturday night, they had a the Vesper service. They went till midnight. Paul left the next morning, Sunday morning, first day of the week. And it wasn't a special day. Thank you. So thank you. For the record, there are many lights in this number chamber, but we're not planning on going till midnight. Mr. Bradshaw. Thank you, Your Honor, in respect of your last statement. Uh, Revelation 14, uh, uh, one, one, second, one second, one second, one second, one second. Yes, Revelation chapter 14, your own favorite chapter of the Bible, verse 12 says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, commandment keepers. That's why you are here and you're not at the mall or the beach or someplace. However, I read in my Bible a very good evangelical verse that I have never heard even an Adventist deny, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Where the word of God says, for by grace are you saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It seems that this verse completely wipes out any need for commandment keeping because we are saved by grace through faith. Why should you people who believe in being saved by grace through faith also double up on yourselves and carry a burden of keeping the commandments? It seems that these two principles are, 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 do not go together. All right, I'm going to pick the person to answer this question because I know he talks fast, Mr. Ernst. You're, you're coming up. You raised your hand Sir, earlier. Would you like to voluntarily come fast. up here? We only have one minute. Or would they uh, like help? I didn't raise my hand. That's okay. <laughs> um, boy, you're putting me under pressure here, man. Um, Okay, so yeah, we're not saved by, by the works of the law, we're saved by grace through faith, but those two um, are not in contradiction to each other. Um, in Matthew, uh, or in John, I forget, where, John chapter, anyway, somewhere in the New Testament, <laughs> in the Gospels, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and so, John 14, 15, thank you. And so, commandment keeping is definitely an aspect of of, uh, of the religion that the Bible teaches, but we're not saved by it. It's something that we do naturally as an outflow. And I wish that I had some text to back this up, but I didn't raise my hand, and um, I'm sure there's lots of them. Just give me a moment to think about it, and then I'll write a glow tract on it, and then I can give that to you. Thank you very much. Any, any follow-up to that, Mr. Bradshaw? Uh, no, none. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please sit down. All right. Imagine being called without raising your hand, and how would that, how would that feel? How did that feel? Let me share a quote with you. By the way, it's always easier asking questions than answering them. In Great Controversy, page 593, it says, Those who endeavor to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. They can stand only in God. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand the will of God as revealed in His Word. They can honor Him only as they have a right conception of His character, government, and purposes, and act in accordance with them. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than men? The decisive hour is even now at hand. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Are we prepared to stand firm in defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that this is just a mock trial. But Lord, one day we will have to stand for our faith when it actually counts. Of course, it even counts now, Lord, but we're not under persecution of getting thrown into jail or even being killed. Lord, help us all to be ready always to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that is within us. Help us to know our Bibles, Lord, so we can defend our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.